What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you today. The big iceberg which is heading towards football is 2024. This week's poddy is with Kieran Maguire, the football finance goat. In this episode, we speak about a plethora of issues from the financials of Premier League clubs to the looming and controversial European Super League. Guys, this is the What The Footy podcast with Kieran Maguire. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. So download, subscribe, rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go! Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's a foot in Powerful people and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So when in the league, let's just win this to appease the fan. He's a football finance lecturer at the University of Liverpool. He's the co-host of the famous Price of Football podcast and he's a Brighton fan. But I think the most famous title he has is apparently he's the godfather of football finance. <laughs> I've, I've been called lots of things, some of them pleasant and quite a few of them unpleasant as well. <laughs> no, that's brilliant, Kieran. Yeah, I thought it'd be great to get you on the podcast today and sort of get your football finance outlook, sort of put on your sort of mystic Meg hat, crystal ball kind of thing and almost look at football and how you almost see it coming out of the pandemic and into the future, man. The first sort of question that we'd like to start off with is what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? To me, it's a sport. I mean, you know, I, I'm a football fan. To me, football is, is the highlight of my week when I go down to, you know, go to a match. It's meeting up with friends. It's, it's having a chat. It's taking the mickey out of each other. Uh, it, it's, part of, it's part of being a bloke. I think, you know, it, it, you know I, I've been watching football since you know, what, seven, eight years old and uh, I, I couldn't do without it. And the last 12 months has been miserable because what, what we've got at present is not football. It's, it's, it's watching people do a, a glorified training facility. Yeah. And, and I think it's made, it's made me realise and hopefully it's made the authorities realise that fans are actually critical to football because we are taken for granted. Uh, you know, the business side of things, I, I just happened to be a teacher and sort of pushed myself into teaching football because my, my students, if, if, I, if I'm talking about, if, if I'm talking about there's some new, new numbers from Ford or Microsoft or, or Sainsbury's, you know, you're teaching a class of people, they're, they're just going to switch off. They're, they're, they're back on Instagram within three seconds. What I found was as soon as I started talking, about local football clubs, and, and, I, and I teach at the, the University of Liverpool, everybody wants to know, whether it's good news uh, about their club, or even, even better, if it's bad news about, about their rivals. If, if I've got bad news about Manchester United, um, Liverpool fans, they're, they're like that. So um, it's, it's a bit naughty of me. I've, I've used football as a way of just trying to do my day job. 
No, that's brilliant. And um, you sort of obviously mentioned the, the numbers there and, uh, and obviously looking at different clubs. Um, just, just sort of break down how clubs have almost changed their strategy because based on people I've spoke to, mainly uh, people at League One clubs, they're sort of becoming a bit more more savvy, savvier with, uh, with how they're approaching things. And obviously you've got, you've got the typical revenue streams of, of commercial revenue, broadcasting, uh, match day revenue as well, and also player trading as well. What, what have been the key things you've noticed clubs do a little bit differently and, and how do you almost see uh, see clubs really maximising that split across, across generating revenue? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right, Paul. Historically, uh, football clubs have either used the turnstiles, they've had TV deals and they've had sponsors. Um, once the turnstiles stopped clicking, last year um, they i think some clubs realized if we can't get the fans to come to the football we've got to work harder at getting the football to go to the fans so the, the efl i follow service it, it doesn't bring in huge sums of money but it brings in yeah. some um I, I think clubs are now you know despite covid they, they are trying to use the official website to get messages across to make the fans still feel engaged to to still feel that they are part of the club because yeah, we always refer to a club as our club yeah, yeah I, I don't refer to sainsbury's as my supermarket do i so yeah um yeah, it, it, it is all about developing that personal relationship um and, and what we've also seen which is maybe really made me really proud to be a football fan is that that so many clubs especially those in the lower leagues have realized that they are part of the of that local town or city and in fact they are the one thing which brings everything together it doesn't matter whether it's south end or crew or morecambe or lincoln we want that club to be there in 12 months time and in five years time and if, if we abandon the club now it, it could disappear and and the one thing that's keeping me going as a football fan is I'm desperate yeah. to get to that next match. I yeah. saw one match during lockdown um, when when I'm a Brighton fan. We we were in tier three for a while, or tier two, and so I went to see one match, and I, I was I was sort of like a kid. It was, it was like Christmas Day all over again. <laughs> and and yeah. I think all fans want that. So so those clubs that that do have good relations with fans, I think they've reaped them. Um, and and those clubs that haven't, that they've probably suffered. But uh, I think think clubs have to be a bit innovative. Yeah, and and even just going on a bit more into how club, obviously clubs generate their revenue. I think uh, at the top end of a lot of Premier League clubs, like I support Arsenal, you support Brighton. Luckily, we're in the big time. Um, I think a really really fascinating thing there is a lot of Premier League clubs are quite over reliant on on the TV revenue that's coming in. What's your sort of thoughts on in terms of how this is going to progress into the future as we've seen with the the recent rights that we have now, they're lower than, than previously before and obviously they're going to be uh, renegotiated next year. What do you think clubs need to do more of? Like we're seeing more clubs dipping into Amazon documentaries. What, what's been your thoughts on uh, on how clubs are becoming a bit more... Um, uh, a, a bit more cute with how they're trying to basically generate revenue in essence? Well, I, I think fans... Have, have seen that to a certain sorry clubs have seen to a certain extent they've been outmaneuvered by fans you know, mm. so, so you've got arsenal tv you know or is yeah. it atv what you know and, and that's got AFTV, a huge yeah aftv yeah, uh, you know, and, and it's one of those ones it, yeah it, it's niche um yeah but uh it, it is it, it it does appeal to an audience and it's successful so i think clubs now realize that 
we, we shouldn't keep fans at arm's length and, and we need to uh, get closer to them because they are so critical. You're, you're absolutely right, Paul, in, in the sense that uh, in, in the Premier League, uh, over half the clubs, I mean, there's 10 clubs that are reliant on TV money for at least 75% of their total income. And that's why football's taking place. Because you know, I, I watched a couple of matches last night, and you probably did as well. And you go, well, if, you know, even as a Brighton fan, we were playing at Manchester City, I go, I, I just can't get excited about it because it's, it's yeah. not right. And, and those matches are purely taking place as a result of the TV contracts because that is, that's allowing Premier League football to survive. In the lower leagues, um, they are using iFollow and they're using the loans or the grants from the Premier League uh, in Leagues 1 and 2 to survive. But it's, it's really tough. Um, I think clubs are, are trying to think of different ways where they can, even if, it is, even if it's just small amounts, but come up with either online products or slightly different forms of merchandise, which would appeal to fans during, the, uh, during lockdown. And then when we all come out of it, we can, we can go back to uh, what we've had before. But um, sort of going forwards we will see a change in, in the way that, uh, that football is consumed on TV. Yeah. Now, whether that's going to be three o'clock Saturday matches now become part of the normal, which I don't think will appeal to smaller clubs, but um, I think the prem some Premier League clubs will be pushing for that. Um, it could be that the, 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 the success of the documentaries that we've seen on Netflix and Amazon, uh, more of those will, will come in because... Uh, people realise that they're relatively cheap to make. And on the, on the back of it, you actually get a good audience and you get an awful lot of social media attention as well. Mm, so yeah. clubs have to, to realise that they, they can't control the message. You know, it's people like you doing podcasts. I, I'm doing a podcast. I did 500 interviews last year for oh, you know, yeah. TV, radio, print, um, you know, and, and podcasts and things. So... The clubs now realise that they they need to perhaps engage with fans a bit more, otherwise they'll they'll lose the message altogether. It, it could be in in one of the next TV deals that they they have some form of instead of buying uh, pay per view for, for a ninety minute match, if you have some sort of easy jet pricing, so that if a match is a bit rubbish, you you can yeah. buy it for one ninety nine. Um, or you could buy the last 15 minutes. You know, let's say that your club's playing and you're not really that bothered, but uh, you know, it's one all, there's 15 minutes to go. You can actually buy a, you can buy a slice of a match. And, and they will become more innovative in how, in how they deliver because there is a whole generation of people. You know, I'm an old bloke. You know, I'm used to watching yeah. TV. Um, and for me, bet, bet, better TV is me going out and buying a bigger TV. I know that I'm out of out of touch with yeah. with the generations below me because they yeah. consume football on smaller devices. So can we make it more appealing to, to people who are watching it on on their yeah their Samsung, their iPhone, their their, their their tablets and things of this nature? Can we get more data coming up um, during the match? Because yeah. we realise that fans actually football fans love numbers. So. You know, when we're now seeing it more from the traditional broadcast, and I think that will become more as part of the game and become become a norm. 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree because I've always been a big believer that I'd love to see a, a massive player like Facebook come into the market. Like you think about how many people watch a game and they're in the, they're in a group chat with their friends on WhatsApp and they're having back and forth. Like imagine if you could watch the game on your laptop or your, or your TV or on one screen you have your WhatsApp with your with your friends having a bit of a yeah. having a bit of a dig at each other and you're watching the game on the other side as well, which would be uh, brilliant. Yeah, so uh, you know we, we we're living. Te technology is changing all aspects of life. The way that we consume football will be changed as well. I, I think it's absolutely laughable that you can go to so many Premier League football grounds and, and you can't get internet access. So therefore you, you yeah. can't do the WhatsApp messages. And yeah. you know, especially if I'm, if I'm sitting in one stand and I'm, my, my mate's sitting in the opposite stand, I want to be able to you say, I don't agree. was that a penalty? You know, is, it, was that a dive? And that's what you want to be able to do. Yeah. Um, club, clubs need to buy into this. They need to upgrade their facilities because we've upgraded as, as consumers. You know, we've, we've got the latest technology. We've all got 4G and 5G phones these days. Why aren't the clubs doing things of that nature? Because they could start to offer you a service. You think about it. When you go to a match, Paul, Arsenal yeah. know that you're in the stadium because when you scan your, your, your season pass or whatever it is, you know, that, that goes through. If they know that, then it could be, let's say that you've got a, a new, you know, a, one, of the, one of the younger players comes through, he scores a goal in the match, and all of a sudden you get a text or you get a WhatsApp message from Arsenal. If you buy, that, if you buy the shirt with this lad's name on the back, 20% off for the hour after the match finishes. And see, the club can start to um, monetize things of that nature. So there, there are, there's lots of scope for the clubs to use us as fans and that incredible emotional relationship that we have. You know, if, if, if blokes loved their wives as much as they loved their football clubs, there'd be no divorce, would there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that's Because that's it, you're, you're Arsenal till you die. Yeah, I'm right yeah, until I die. You know, pe yeah. And people say, you're crazy because I've lived <laughs> most of my life in Manchester and I've taught yeah. in Manchester and Liverpool. And people have always said to me, why are you, get, why are you catching the 10 past six train on a Saturday morning every fortnight to go and watch Brighton? Because most of the time we've been crap. It's only, yeah, we've only, it's only our fourth season in the Premier League. And I said, well, I, I can't not do it. It's it's part of me, you know, and that's how I yeah. identify myself. It's all part of our identity uh, in terms of that relationship with the clubs. The clubs really ought to be a bit smarter. I'm not saying exploit it, but, you know, they, 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 they know that we're in the ground. They know what we're watching. Why can't they, you know, do a special commemorative post-match something or this, that and the other? You know, there's certainly ways for them to, to generate more revenues um from uh fr from from the match yeah and, and i think a big thing um that the fans struggle to almost get their head around is okay we're generating all this revenue um off the pitch on the pitch but the whole issue of allocation could you sort of just break that down for for fans like when you're looking at the accounts to really understand okay we've generated this amount of of, uh, of revenue and profit coming in this amount of money has been spent on player trading this amount of money is going to this sort of stream because if you look at a, a public company like tesco you, you can almost see how all those numbers are moving and i think fans almost struggle to really really understand that so like i support arsenal i know obviously pre-COVID, uh, generating like a lot of revenue, high match day revenue especially, but in terms of uh, 
of a net net spend perspective and in terms of uh, revenue on, on player perspective, we're not really seeing that that benefit really come to light. Well, if if you take a look at Arsenal's figures compared to Arsenal's rivals, okay, and, and I know it will pain you to say this, but Spurs are now yeah. one of Arsenal's rivals in in the Premier yeah. League, and then you've got the two Manchester clubs, and you've got Chelsea and and Liverpool. Arsenal have dropped out of the big six. You know, it's now yeah. a big five, if we're honest. And, yeah. and, and, and I know you don't want to hear that as an Arsenal fan. <laughs> yeah. So what, why is that the case? Arsenal have dropped back because they're, they're not paying the same wage levels as the other clubs. So therefore, when it comes to recruitment, it makes it that much more difficult. I mean, Spurs are actually punching above their weight. The Spurs wage bill is only slightly higher than that of Everton. And, and it's about £60 million less than Arsenal. But Arsenal's wage bill which used to be sort of top two, top three, it, it's now fallen behind Liverpool, the two Manchester clubs and Chelsea. So it's making it that much more difficult. And although I think Arsenal fans uh, used to get frustrated that, Ars in their view, Arsene Wenger was satisfied finishing third or fourth in the Premier League, yeah. in terms of where you were compared to your wage budget, that's where you should have been finishing. And, and it's yeah. frustrating, yeah. but now that you're not finishing in the top four, you, you realise that actually he, he probably did a pretty good job over that period of time. Because the way that football operates is that the income drives costs. So if you've got more money coming in and, and qualifying for the Champions League is absolutely critical. It, it's yeah. worth a minimum you know, in, in a, in a non-COVID year. It's worth a minimum of, I would say, 40 million if you get to... Uh, the group stages and it could be worth up to 150 million pounds if you go on to win it by the time you look at the prize money plus the the sponsorship bonuses that will kick in plus uh you, you'll have had seven matches at home so you've got you know for, for arsenal generate over four million pounds every time they, they play at uh, at the at the emirates so if, if, if the opposition, especially if you're in the Champions League, you can charge pretty decent prices. You know yourself, Paul, when they're playing in the Europa League and you've got the side that finished yeah. second at home in Albania <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, on a Thursday night, you've got to cut the prices if, if you're Arsenal yeah, to, yeah. to get a decent crowd. And, and that's, not, that's not a slight, that's not a criticism of Arsenal fans. That, that's economics, you know, because you go to see Arsenal and yeah, I, I want to see the opposition. Well, if the opposition's got Messi playing for them or Neymar yeah. or or players of that ilk you are willing to pay 50 or 60 or whatever it's Premium, going to be yeah. to go and watch if it is Albania's second best team you go well you know 15 15 quid max yeah. perhaps 20 quid pushing see, it see, see a couple um, of PE teachers and uh, and uh, and builders playing on the on the first day no <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. and it's not it's not disrespecting the opposition it's yeah football's entertainment and the, the, the higher the quality of the opposition, the, the more, the, the greater the sense of achievement when, when you put in a good performance and you get a good result. If, if you beat, if, if you beat a team on a Thursday night in the group stages of the Europa League, if you win 3-0, you'll, you'll have forgotten it by the time you got home. Whereas if, you, <laughs> if you're playing Barcelona and you, and you scrape a 1-1 draw, you, you, you're going to be talking about that for the next five or six days. So, so yeah, yeah. that's all reflected. So, for, for, so from Arsenal's point of view, it, it is important because they, they are starting to drift. And, and that's, that's my concern. 
Uh, you know, Arsenal's revenue, the, the last figures that we've got for, for a full season, 396 million. You've got Manchester United at 627. You've got Liverpool, wow. Manchester City, 530. Chelsea, 447. Spurs, Spurs generated 65 million pounds more than Arsenal because Champions League and, and they have got the new stadium. And uh, have you been there as an Arsenal fan, as an away fan yet? No, I haven't been there yet, no. All the games have been behind closed doors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. you're right. Um, I mean, I, I, I went there a couple of seasons ago, and, and I've, I've been to every ground. Yeah, you, and, you know, I, I love going to the Emirates. I love going to the Etihad. I don't particularly like going to Old Trafford because it's it, it's really ancient. Away with the days. gods, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a rubbish view. I, I went to Spurs Stadium, and, and I know you don't want to hear this. I just went, Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Yeah. It um, is, to be fair, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you've got to give them credit that they, they and what they've done is every decision that they've made in that stadium is designed to separating you from your wallet, you know, because they serve the beer faster than any other stadium. So therefore, you're willing, you know, can I be bothered going for a pint at lunchtime, sorry, at, at halftime? Yes, you can, because you know you're going to get served. Um, so everything is geared and, and the fact that the pitch rolls in and rolls out and they can have the NFL. Um, yeah. I, I think they've been really smart. Um, Arsenal is, you know, it, it, it's a classic club. It, it's, a, it's a club, as you know yourself, with fantastic history and heritage. But I think their thinking is, is looking a little bit dated and, and they need to, to look at Spurs and say, well, Spurs have now set a standard. Why can't we yeah. do that at, at, at the Emirates? Yeah, t talk to me a little bit more about Liverpool because obviously um, won the Champions League a few seasons ago, which, as you mentioned, I think that year they generated about £108 million from winning it, if I believe, and um, also winning the Premier League as well, which is quite lucrative. What's been their big issue in terms of being able to buy players? I know uh, Klopp has always been a bit sad in the media when it comes to transfers and, and being able to spend money. What's their big issue with spending money? And is it still linked to repaying the loans that the FSG um, sort of took on uh, when they bought the club from the, uh, the previous owners? They didn't break the bank spending money. If, if you take a look at the cost of, of Liverpool's squad, um, it's it's actually lower than than that of, of quite a few clubs um, mm. who, with whom they're competing. What they're not doing is is making as many mistakes. Um, and if I just get the figures up here, um, yeah, the cost of Liverpool's squad six hundred and forty seven million. Manchester United's 850, Manchester City's 906. Um, we've got Chelsea at 870, so they're all pretty high. Uh, Liverpool, yeah. you know, 200 million pounds less on the squad than their rivals, and yet they're, they're a team that are absolutely going for it. Arsenal, uh, Arsenal, yeah, we've said that they've, they've dropped off. That their squad cost 520. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's substantially less. You know, it's yeah. it's a it's a third less than that of Manchester City and Chelsea and Manchester United. And you've got to get the decisions right. Spurs are at three thirty. You know, Spurs have, have have done some really good recruitment, and they've got Harry Kane. Who, you know, if yeah. if you went out and tried to buy Harry Kane, you, you're not going to get any change from 150 million. So you know he he yeah. came through the ranks and it cost them nothing. So so they I think Spurs have have punched above their weight and the stadium means that what they can achieve in the future is is advantageous. Liverpool have just 
bought bought well. They, they've not had yeah. too many disasters in the last three or four years. Yeah, and, and just sort of talk to me more about loans in general. Obviously, I know that, uh, as I mentioned there, uh, when FSG came in, they took over the loans from the, from the previous owners as well. And I think, obviously, we heard the news recently about Arsenal taking out a loan and everyone's sort of panicking, oh, Arsenal going broke, there's no money in the bank. But just sort of explain to the listeners just how debt finance within football works because I think a lot of fans struggle to understand that the clubs, more or less, when you strip it back, are actually businesses, and there's different ways in which they can acquire finance, whether that's to buy a club or to just sort of get them ticking over. There's nothing wrong with debt. I mean, we've all got yeah. debt. It could be student loans, it could be a mortgage, it could be a car loan, it could be a credit card loan, you might have an overdraft. So, debt is fine so long as you can finance it. So what you've got to do is most most loans taken out by football clubs tend to be interest only. So you, you take out, let's say you take out a loan for 100 million. Um, it could be, if you, if you look at Spurs loans, they're, they're due for repayment in 2037. So they've got 17 years before they have to repay that 630 million pounds. Well, that's 17 years away. You know, heaven knows what the world's going to be like. When, it, when it's due for repayment, the bank's happy lending to Spurs. They think that Spurs is low risk, so therefore they, they, they've lent at you know, 2 or 3% interest. Um, that's fine. It's, it's the same with, I think, with Arsenal's £120 million loan from the Bank of England. The, the Bank of England said, you, we, we're, we're happy to give you this loan because Arsenal are good at generating money through the turnstiles. If, if we assume that there's going to be no matches taking place this season in, in front of a paying crowd, you factor in the, the, the back end of last season as well. It, it's cost Arsenal around about £120 million in lost revenue from ticket sales. So that's what the Bank of England loan is there for. Um, it, it's being, it's, I think it's you know, 0.1, 0.5% interest rate. So there's no significant cost to the club. And then at the end of the season, they'll get some more money from Sky and BT and that will be used to, to pay back yeah. the loan. So it, it, it's not great. I mean, you, um, you ask anybody, would you rather live in a house with a mortgage or not have a mortgage? You, you, we'd all rather not have a mortgage, but sometimes yeah. it's got to be done. So, uh, I mean, the only thing I would say is, could Stan Kroenke have lent the club the money? He, he probably could, but yeah. he's looked at it and said, well, if, if the Bank of England are lending money at 0.1% interest and we're entitled to do it, what, why not? Yeah, there, there's, there's nothing wrong. Other businesses are doing it. Why shouldn't Arsenal Football Club and Tottenham Hotspur Football Club do the same? And, and, and they've, they've taken advantage of the schemes. Yeah, no, definitely. Because, um, yeah, I think people are struggling to really wrap their head, uh, heads around it. And um, also just sort of in regards to loans as well, we've seen, um, as you mentioned, their owners lend money to their clubs and obviously some like the West Ham owners as well charge interest rates on, on, on those loans as well. So um, it does happen within football, guys. So um, there we go, really. I just wanted to also just get, get, get your sort of take as well on the... Just, Get, get your sort of mystic med predictions in terms of football finance, things that you see sort of happening going forward in, into the year, um, especially in regards to sustainability and um, financial fair play. Um, in terms of financial fair play, it's going to be relaxed for a couple of years. 
Um, but relaxed isn't the same as abandoned because I think if, you, if they abandon financial fair play, um, it, it could be that Chelsea all of a sudden spend, instead of £250 million in the summer, they'll go and spend £500 million in the summer. So, so financial fair play will exist, but it will be a watered-down version. Uh, what would that watered-down version look like? Well, uh, I, th- I think what the, the Premier League have said is that you will be allowed to claim for COVID costs. So okay. you, you'll be allowed to claim for your lost revenues. You'll be allowed to play, claim for uh, COVID testing of players. You'll, you know, th- they'll come up with a series of rules and then the accountants and lawyers will sort of, they'll, they'll make sure that everything's COVID related. Um, so... <laughs> You know, the, 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 I, don't, I don't see clubs in the Premier League having a financial fair play issue. It'll be, it'll be trickier in, in, the, in the Championship uh, because clubs are already losing huge amounts of money. Um, going, going forwards, the, the big iceberg which is heading towards football is 2024 because that's the year that the... Uh, UEFA Champions League TV deal expires and, and, mm. the, and the present arrangements for the Champions League expire. So what's going to replace that, I, I think, is going to dictate what happens domestically in terms of football in this country. If we move, and, and, and the present suggestion is that they move to... Um, I think it will be 32 clubs split into two divisions of 16 and each club plays 12 group games. So it, it's really, so, so you won't play the same opposition twice, but you'll, you'll play some more big opposition. And then I think the top 16 or the top eight in each division go through to a knockout and the other, and the other eight go into playoffs for whether they're going to qualify for the Champions League for the final. So, it all, so the aim is to increase the number of European matches. Yeah. Now, now, the problem we've got is that you can't increase the number of European matches beyond what we've really got at present. If, if you think about it, if, if, you, if you were to win the Champions League this season under normal rules, you've got six group games, then you've got last 16, last eight, semi-finals and final. You're talking 13 games. They're proposing to increase it to 19. You think... 19 games European plus 38 games in the Premier League plus the Carabao Cup plus the FA Cup plus international weekends plus the World Cup every four years and, and the, Euro, the, the Euro Championships every four years. The, Nations the League African well, Cup yeah. of Nations. It, yeah. it can't be done. So, so the pressure will be on for all of the main domestic leagues in Europe, if they're not already there, to be reduced to 18 or perhaps even 16 clubs. And so I think that will be the difference. And that means if if you are a a supporter of, I would say, you know, the clubs such as Everton, Leicester, Villa, Leeds, you know, those clubs are sort of pretty big clubs, you know, the clubs that could easily sell out a 40,000-seater stadium without thinking. Uh, and could probably get to 50,000 just as easily, 
the fans of those clubs are really going to get shortchanged and the gap between those clubs which will be qualifying for this big European competition and those that are not that gap which is already huge is just going to get so big that it's the, the glass ceiling which sort of exists in the Premier League at present is just going to be amplified. So, so that's where I think is going to be the main change. Uh, Carabao Cup is, is going to go, is my understanding. Smaller Premier League. I'm a bit romantic about the Carabao Cup because obviously it's a nice trophy to win. You get to go for a nice day out at Wembley. And, but I think like you mentioned, we're seeing this, this whole issue with the distribution of wealth. And uh, it, it almost seems as, like, for example, I never thought I'd really see the day that the 3 p.m. traditional kickoffs would, would actually be, be televised. And yeah. we're now living in a time where, where they are, which is, which is crazy. And, and and you think about it, Paul. You know, within within the last twelve months, we've gone from uh, you're a bit fed up with all these football, staggered yeah. TV times. Yeah. But now yeah. I just accept it. You know, on a Saturday, yeah. there's a match live at twelve. There's a match live at three. There's one at five thirty. There's one at eight. Sunday's exactly the same. There's one on a Friday night. There's one on a Monday night. And very very quickly, it's a bit like. Uh, I, I always think it's it's like smoking in restaurants. You know, yeah. Before before the rule was announced, it was something you didn't I didn't particularly like, but you accepted. If I went into a restaurant in the UK today and somebody was smoking, I'd be going, Jesus Christ, what, what's going on here? This is this is outrageous. Yeah. And and I think that's what's going to happen in terms of staggered times for football. What we have experienced over the course of the last twelve months will become so normalized in our expectations that having all of these staggered times will be part of football going forwards. And, and as, as a fan that travels home and away to watch my club, it's an absolute disaster. Yeah. Because, you know, if, 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 if we get drawn, you know, let's, let's say we're playing Newcastle at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night, the match finishes at 10, you get out of the car, there's no trains home, so you have to drive, you're getting home at, four o'clock in the morning so that means that your Sunday's knackered as well or if it, if it takes place on a Sunday at 6 or 8 p.m so it, yeah. I think for for fans it, th th there's going to be a few shocks for us yeah no definitely and um yeah we usually um have a segment of the show called what the foot are you lying for uh two truths one lie have you prepared some some statements for that or uh let's get into it. I once babysat for um for Brian Robson, Brian one, Robson. I lived in Manchester, so that's one. That's one story. Um, another one is I once got kicked out of a football ground uh, at Watford for singing rude songs about Elton John. Rude songs about Elton John. <laughs> and in the 1983 FA Cup final. Um, I was the only Brighton fan travelling down from Manchester in a Brighton shirt. And on the way back, I locked myself in the toilet and cried all the way home. Um, those, those are three really tough ones. Um, you mentioned obviously Manchester and, and sort of living up there. So I'd locking yourself in the toilet and crying. I know you're... I've, I've cried over Arsenal and I've cried over England, so I'm going to go with that's a truth. 
<laughs> um, and then I'm going to say the Brian Robson one is so random um, that I believe it's true. It's false. It's false. Oh, false. no. Yeah. yeah. So, go on. Tell, tell me about locking yourself in, in, in the toilets and crying and uh, being kicked out of the stadium. Well, in, in, uh, in 83, Brighton got to the FA Cup final. Um, yeah. We played Manchester United on the Saturday, drew 2-2. So, there was a replay in those days. We, we played the replay. I was at Manchester University at the time. So, I was travelling down from Manchester. Um, for the replay was on a Thursday night. Uh, Manchester United stuffed us 4-0. Yeah. I had to catch the train back to Manchester because I had an exam on the Friday morning. So it was a, it was a very slow overnight train. And, and the United fans were just taking the piss out of me, left, right and centre. So I went and locked myself in the toilet. Yeah. And, and, the, uh, and the, the Watford one? The Wat Watford one, it was, uh, we, we were playing Watford in the FA Cup. Um, and uh, I was right at the very front row. And I was screaming abuse at Elton John because he just got married. Okay, it's, yeah. it's just a very, it's just a very high-profile marriage to some German woman. So I was, I, I can't, I can't remember. It, it was, it was completely out of order. It was wrong. Um, and uh, a, a, a couple of coppers said, "You, you can't say that." Um, so, so they grabbed me and kicked me out of the ground, and I had to go and then pay to get back in again. Because that's all they did. In those days, they just go and give you a kick up the backside and say, you know, sod off, go home. Um, so I went round to the front of the turnstiles and let myself, and I had to go and pay to get pay twice to go and see the same match. Just sort of obviously speaking a little bit about Brighton, and obviously I've always been a, been a huge fan of Brighton, and obviously lovely, uh, lovely uh, city as well. And um, just sort of in terms of, of your football club, and obviously I know obviously a couple of seasons into the Premier League as well, Flirting a little bit with relegation. Hopefully, I'm not upsetting you too much here no, no, by no. saying it's that. Fair comment. How 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 costly would it be for for a team like Brighton to to go down? Um, in terms of the impact upon revenue, uh, even with parachute payments, we're, we're probably looking at sixty million pounds in the first year, um, and that means certainly you know, we'd be selling off our best best players. Um, yeah, and, and that's part of football. I don't, I don't actually have an issue with that. It, it's the fact yeah. that the impact that it has on, on the town itself. Um, you know, the, the club employs a lot of people. There's going to be job losses. When, when Aston Villa were relegated from the uh, Premier League in, in 2016, within two years, they'd shed about 600 jobs. So wow. it, it's, it's those things which, which, which I think will hurt me more because... Being in the Premier League has been great fun. Um, we, the football we play is pretty and nice, uh, yeah, but we, we can't win matches, uh, and that yeah. was that was a problem. Uh, and it, it still is exciting when we're playing Arsenal and Spurs and Chelsea and the big clubs, you because know, we, we we are never going to be more than a provincial club. We know that. Um, it, it will. Yeah. It will, it will be nice to be in the Premier League for more than four years because we've never done more than four years at the top before. Yeah, and and just sort of just going into that about selling key players as well. Obviously, player trading is a big part of how how clubs generate revenue. Some clubs choose not to reinvest that money. I, I remember the days of when we had to sell a player every single year to fund our stadium. Thierry Henry, Sami Nagy. 
what would it almost mean to you if people like Ben White, Tariq Lamptey, obviously these are, we're talking about £50 million plus players based on sort of valuations. How, how would that really affect you as a fan? Because I think it's quite fascinating how obviously it is important. Like I speak with a lot of people at football clubs and a lot of them are trying to go down the whole Brentford model and the whole Brentford approach. And I think they've almost nailed it. It's almost like one out, one in, and um, I just wanted to know your, your opinion as a Brighton fan and someone in finance uh, of this sort of player training model. Um, player development and, and trading, I, I think, is is critical. I, I feel uncomfortable as a fan that we are now seeing footballers as commodities. Yeah. Because they're not. You know, they're, they are sons and brothers and boyfriends and husbands and dads and all of this. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the same as all of us, but... We, we, we as fans, we treat them as if they are personal possessions of ours. So, so that bit has never uh, made me feel particularly comfortable. But, it, but in terms of the player themselves, I'm, I'm a great believer is that if, if we've got a really, you know, Ben White's a cracking player, Tarek Lamptey, um, we've got uh, Yves Basuma, who I think has been linked with Arsenal yeah. on, on more Arsenal, than one occasion. Yeah. He, he, he's a cracking player. Um, if, if they went, I, I'd wish them well. You know, they've never given less yeah. than 100% for the club. Um, they are entitled as professionals within their industry to um, appear at the highest level. You know, if, if, uh, if, if Cambridge University or Harvard came in for me, I'd, I'd be there like a shot, you know, because you, you want yeah. to be, it doesn't matter what your profession is, to, to be able to express yourself um, at the highest level is is something I think which which everybody aspires to. So I'd say thanks for the memories. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to see you play for my club, and now you know you're playing for your national team. You're you're playing in the Premier League, in the Champions League on a regular basis. I would wish them nothing but good luck and, and my best wishes. We like to end the uh, the episode with the what the footy question. So uh, what the footy needs to happen or change within your uh, space. Um, I, I think the the best change that could happen is if we have uh, greater fan involvement uh, in in the game. Uh, fans should be allowed to attend boardroom meetings. There should be a fa- there should be a, uh, a, 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 an independent fan on the board of every football club to to represent us, because we're going to be there until the day we die. You know, that, that, our love for the club will never, never go away. And having somebody that can represent that when, when owners are making decisions, I, I think that's the best way because we've seen owners come and go at so many clubs and having mm. a fan say, this, this will not go down well, this is appropriate, this is, this is good, this is bad, I, I think would help. Um, and, and it would help the relations between clubs and fans as well. No, I think definitely, Kieran, and we're going to make it happen. And I think obviously works well at clubs like Brighton, Tony Bloom, a Brighton fan, Brentford, they're only there, a Brentford fan as well. Wishing the same could happen at Arsenal. But um, but yeah, obviously, yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast anyway. Kieran Maguire, the accountant, the lecturer, the Brighton fan, the Price of Football co-host, and apparently the godfather of football finance. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Cheers, Paul. Thanks for the invite and uh, best wishes to Arsenal for this season. Wow, what an episode just then with Kieran. Guys, I want to shout out one of my super listeners, Scott Sheehan, who left the review on Apple Podcasts. And Scott says, 
best football podcast around. Loving every episode. Keep up the good work. Big yourself up, Scott. And guys, please keep sending in those reviews and those voice notes to WhatTheFooty at hotmail.com. I will try and embed those into every single episode. Take care of yourselves. Have an amazing week. Peace and love. Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's a putting awesome. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Switching to GEICO is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, GEICO makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7, online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to GEICO, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, GEICO has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to GEICO. It's obviously a good idea. Minute Maid slushies are back at McDonald's. And if you'd like to thank me for that information, I'll gladly take a slushie. It's more than a drink. It's a McDonald's drink. Right now, treat yourself to a small Minute Maid slushie, like the new strawberry watermelon flavor for $1.59. Or try small McCafe frappes and smoothies for just 2 bucks. Price and participation may vary. Limited time only. Minute Maid is a trademark of the Coca-Cola Company.